open wide and tuck in to Spoon It with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, Dame Margaret Beckett. She's announced she's going to quit uh, Parliament at the next election. She'll have been in politics for half a century. She served in the governments of Wilson and Callaghan, then of Blair and Brown. She's been there and done that and seen it all. Uh, so we've got a really fascinating chat uh, coming up with her on the podcast. Before, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Thursday, it is, of course, Night at the Marriott, India Night and James Marriott. Uh, well, let's um, let's talk about your column uh, in the Times today, James. Failing to make a decision is no failure at all. What do you mean? Because normally people not making decisions are quite annoying. Well, I mean, yeah, I suppose I was going for a bit of a contrarian stance on this. Surely one. not. <laughs> um, but I uh, saw last week this film, the worst, uh, the worst person in the world, uh, which I thought was really good, and was about a woman in her sort of late twenties, turning thirty, who sort of fails to make her mind up about life, and you know, I think she starts out as a medical student, then she switches to psychology, then she decides that she's a visual person and becomes a photographer, then she thinks she might be a journalist. Um, and I just thought, I don't know, I was sort of thinking, I'm not sure there's anything necessarily terribly wrong with that. And um, being super intensely focused on one particular one particular career, one particular path in life, which I think it kind of takes to be, to be successful in, in the modern world, um, I'm not sure that's necessarily miles better than uh, not knowing what you're doing, being uncertain about stuff, not necessarily feeling like you have a huge kind of passion or you're filled with focus or, or, or drive, uh, which I think sort of everyone's required to have for jobs that are often sort of quite... Um, quite sort of quite sort of you know not necessarily the most exciting jobs in the world i always think about these quotes you know people always got these quotes by like you know gandhi or martin luther king about like never giving up and you know um always conquering failure which i was sort of thinking is you know it's all very well if you are if you are gandhi or martin luther king but applying the same kind of single-minded purpose to being um you know management consultant isn't necessarily you know <laughs> that might not be the just best choice for your life to apply quite that much purpose was was my basic thesis do you think there was a difference i mean i agree there's nothing wrong with sort of flitting about and trying to work out what you want to do with yourself the 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 temp the, the concern sometimes the sort of well i want to keep my options open you know and then so uh, and always thinking that some somewhere else the grass is always greener someone else is having more fun 
never really enjoying or or um, committing to something because you might. That's a, that's an unfulfilling way to live yes, your life, isn't it? That's true, but it also depends what you're committing to. And I think if you think you know, not everyone has all the most wonderful choices in the world. We can't all live the exact life we want to. And if you are, if you do, if you do end up in a job that maybe you don't absolutely love, I think you should feel fine about that. And that unfortunately happens to people. And I don't know the insistence that you have to be completely focused and driven into you know your career. I think you know is not necessarily fair on absolutely on absolutely everyone. Um, yeah, and I, I was um, I was reading loads of really fun stuff about sort of um, how much more amateurish our society used to be, and uh, you know, I mean, all this stuff about how you know how many hundred, you know, I think you know if you're a top chef, you can work like a hundred hours a week. That used to be quite amateurish. I was reading all this brilliant stuff about you know Olympians in the sort of end of the nineteenth century, and I think the greatest Olympian, I think it was the Paris Olympics in the beginning of the twentieth century, and the world's greatest Olympian just didn't turn up to the Olympics because he didn't know it was on. And I think. Um, <laughs> I think we could do with more of that sort of relaxed attitude to life in the modern world. I've got, a, I vaguely remember a story of um, Alan Brazil, who's, you know, in this bill, he's on Talk Sport and he's a famous uh, footballer, former footballer. And I've definitely heard him telling a story once about how he'd, uh, he'd like, somebody would entered into him into a marathon. He didn't really know what that involved. And he went out and had a lot of drinks the <laughs> night before. Uh, and I think it was a half, it was a half marathon the next day. Um, and, uh, yeah, he just drank, I think oh, I've seven pints on top of all the wine I'd had. And then he reminded me I'm doing a half marathon the next day. I think he just turned up in his own, like his normal shoes and did a half marathon. I am behind this attitude. I'm very, we need more of this. It's like all those great stories about Olympic sprinters, you know, like stubbing their cigarettes out on the starting blocks and then going and like, you know, I, I, I like all that stuff. What, what, is it, are you a fan of, of this, this sort of amateurism, amateurism in India? Yes, very much so. I love amateurs. I love amateurs much more than people who are single-mindedly and obsessively going for a thing, usually because that thing is very high-paying. I really love this column. I completely agree with everything in it. I think what I often think when I look at super, super successful people who sort of bust their head to get to where they are, often I look at them and I think, what in your life is fun? What do you do for fun? Because you can't, you know, sit and, you can only sit and count your money for so long. The idea that you might have been quite good at something or a bit rubbish at something that you really enjoyed, I think is really important because you need to live your life. And as James says, most people don't feel passionate. I mean, it's so ridiculous also the way that people are required to say they feel passionate about, you know, accounting or shelf stacking or, or, or whatever. It's stupid. Um, but it is it is a kind of HR requirement. It's completely bananas. But anyway, um, uh, most people don't do a, a job that they feel passionate about or that they love deeply and that is their entire raison d'etre. So it's particularly important to keep your oar in with kind of amateurish, hobbyish, hobbyist pursuits yeah. that bring you happiness, whether you're good at them or not. I think it's a vital, vital thing, actually. And I think children, school age, secondary school age children should have this emphasised to them. You know, you need to live a lot of life and some of it, of course, has to be work. But the rest of it has to be, you have to feel free and the rest of it free to explore what interests you and what you enjoy doing. I just remember I had a Saturday job working in H. Samuel and I'd been there for a while. And when they started nudging me towards, I think it was when they wanted to train me in ear piercing and I was giving a sort of glossy brochure. Uh, which is all about, you know, being passionate about piercing ears. And I suddenly realised, <laughs> actually, I wasn't very passionate about piercing ears. And so uh, I left uh, not long after. Um, 
Yeah, uh, I, I worked in I worked in um, a retail uh, in a retail park in, a, in, a, in an outlet store called Boundary Mill, and I sold mugs and was encouraged to be passionate about about selling mugs at the age of seventeen. Were I was, you? I was not passionate. <laughs> um, but some, I mean, maybe some some people are. Some people yes, do like course, working yeah, in retail. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, was, that wasn't yeah, my. That's absolutely that true. wasn't my. Um, I mean, the other no, thing no is, like, and we've on, all got friends like this who um, obsess constantly about. They're always telling you how much money they're earning and how much more money they're going to be earning in the new job and uh, and all of that. And, and without ever sort of just well, just enjoy your work. You know, it's not. A, I don't yeah, care how much how much money you're earning. It makes no of, difference to me. Just exactly. enjoy your it's life. Very defensive, and it's. Just, I always think that's a sign of somebody wanting you to envy their life, even though they know that it's not actually enviable. Yeah, but also we're not eighteen anymore. You know, yeah. just you just need to enjoy your life and your family and the, where you live and all of that. That's much more important than exactly the way about what other people are are earning. Um, I feel like I've won you round over the course of that conversation. You basically right? have, James. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's quite extraordinary. Um, is it any good? The worst person in the world. I. Yes, I enjoyed it. I think you go and um, a lot of it's very good. And the thing, the problems I had were like interesting to talk about rather than annoying, basically. Um, <laughs> well, that's good. It's given you a column, so you can, you can claim that back on expenses. <laughs> um, let's talk about the uh, the thing which is in uh, Times Two today. It's uh, Charlie Gowan's Eglinton uh, criticizing Boris Johnson for making Ian Blackford fat shaming jokes. Now, I've got a confession to make. I make a couple of these in my stand-up show, and I wasn't aware that I, it was an issue. But I say this as a man who's, who no one would describe as uh, slim. Um, that, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, I think if Boris Johnson was a sinewy and honed physical specimen and he was making fat jokes at Ian Blackford, that might be a bit weird. But um, it's a chubby bloke making a joke about a chubby bloke, and I don't know that that's necessarily problematic but I mean also what might be problematic I think is that very often if you've been to public school teasing is the only way you can express emotion if you're completely emotionally repressed you you say (laughs) awful things to people and it means that secretly you're quite fond of them Um, and also I think there's a difference it's interesting um, Charlie's piece I think there's a difference between slightly chubby men and slightly chubby women in that I think most women prefer slightly chubby men ah Let's hope for me. Yeah, yeah. I, think actually, <laughs> no, I think there's actually, and now I feel like I'm making it up. I think there's actually research about this. Women don't mind a few extra pounds. I don't think men do either, actually. But anyway, women don't mind a few extra pounds. So it's not like, it's not, it's not like you're insulting somebody for something that is, you know, completely uncountenanceable and awful. Um, it's just kind of being a bit tubby. And actually, I think he secretly quite loves Ian Blackford. Actually, not. Not to do down Charlie Gowan's piece, Charlie Gowan's Eglinton's piece today, but he he's actually just taken the quote slightly out of context. So because what Boris Johnson mm. actually said was uh, he told Ian Blackford that he is like me a living testament to the benefits of moderation in all things. No, yeah, which changes the whole joke. Which changes yeah, the whole joke because he was yeah. joking that you know basically I'm fat and so are you. It's a slightly different. <laughs> it's a slightly different. Uh, but the, the, but then the, but then you know what you can and can't joke about has been a big you know, debate of the week, James. You know, there's obviously the Chris Rock thing and making jokes about um, uh, Will Smith's wife, um, uh, and you know, and that she's got out of picture. And I suppose the big difference is there is a difference between joking about someone's medical condition that they can't do anything about, um, and joking about you know if if Ian Blackford's a bit portly, ultimately he could he could eat fewer tape. Was it meats and tatties? Yeah, I mean, I, my sort of feeling is, I just, 
you end up in this like mad situation where you're trying to like put every you're trying to kind of rank every single joke that's ever made on this sort of like chart of like how offensive is it relative to other jokes and i sort mm. of think there's definitely there's definitely probably quite a big gray space between something that's like not the nicest thing in the world you could say to someone but ultimately isn't the end of the world and probably is the kind of thing that human beings are going to say to each other being you know creatures fond of jokes and not always being nice to everyone all the time and i don't know i think a lot of stuff probably fits into probably fits into that and not every not every not every slightly mean or humorous comment is like you know the worst thing ever said it's to also i think i, I think I'm at the risk of repeating myself i think there is often affection behind jokes yeah. you know the 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 the, 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 the words may be quite stingy if you write them down in black and white but actually in the, the delivery in the in the delivery there's a kind of fondness so not everything is an appalling insult sometimes it's just a joke that may or may not land but you know it's just a joke it's not badly meant uh, yeah there was definitely a, i think you could probably say there was a twinkle in boris johnson's eye when he made that joke about ian blackford yesterday um but it did make it, but certainly the chris Watt thing has definitely made me think is there something in my show there's quite i mean you know it goes on for two hours it's got a lot of jokes um uh and there's clearly nothing like i hope there's nothing that's going to get me slapped in the face but i'm basically rude about a load of people and how would i feel if they were in the audience well, maybe I'll find out this week if they make the mistake of coming. Um, but but again, it's all in context, isn't it? And it's, I mean, in the Jimmy Carr thing, we've talked about that before, the, the joke he made about um, the Holocaust, uh, mm. I think probably was beyond the pale. But actually, he's talked before about how you could take almost any joke from his show. And if you type yes, it and up and put it on that, the front that, of the Daily Mail, yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. And, and he I, knew it was beyond the pale. He, he prefaced the joke, I think, by saying, you know, this is going to be the joke that ends my career. Um, I think he said. So yeah. it was very, very deliberate. I don't think he should have made that particular joke, but it's Jimmy Carr. That's the kind of joke he makes if the, you're the, in the, the fasc- audience, you know. The fascinating thing about that was I think that had been on that had been on Netflix for I think a few months, hadn't it, before um yeah. before it went viral and the people mm. watch it's the context as he said, it's the context thing. The people watching it on Netflix were Jimmy Carr fans who accepted this as the kind of thing Jimmy Carr did and viewed him as basically a good person. It was when it was taken out of context and put on Twitter or TikTok or whatever that people who didn't necessarily love Jimmy Carr as much as everyone who's gone to the trouble of going onto Netflix, clicking on his show and watching it right the way to the end. Exactly. By, million, by, um, by that point, millions of fans presumably had watched it yeah. and thought, well, that's just what Jimmy Carr does. And he, had no problem with it. Yeah. Um, and people, go, people going to your show will know that you're a good person and, you know, making nice, making nice jokes in a spirit of, you know, not, you know. not, I mean, to, I, not total evil. To, to be and absolutely I think... clear, I'm not Jimmy Carr. In fact, <laughs> I even joke at one point, I'm not Jimmy Carr, so I'm not going to elaborate <laughs> on some of the things that, that he might well have done. Well, it's lovely to see you both. Indian Night and James Barrett, and of course you can read the both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Dame Margaret Beckett. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of light-hearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Dame Margaret Beckett has announced her retirement after starting working in politics half a century ago. She's been at the forefront of Labour politics since first being elected as an MP back in 1974. She went on to become the first woman to lead the Labour Party and the first woman to be appointed Foreign Secretary. I'm delighted uh, that she joins me now. Morning, Margaret. Uh, good to have you with us. Uh, so uh, we've got five decades to get through uh, that I want to sort of pick through, so we don't want to leave anything out. So let's start, let's start in the 1970s. There were two elections for Labour in 1974. Uh, Margaret, you fought both, were elected in the second one. Here's a clip of Harold Wilson speaking ahead of that one, the first one. If we are to stop the acceleration in food prices and other prices, then the stand that the incoming Labour government takes with the EEC is crucial. A Labour government will not accept those increased prices. So that was back in um, the 1970s, Margaret. What, what drew you in to becoming uh, an MP in the first place? I mean, actually, at, at back in the 1970s, quite an unusual thing for a woman to do. Um, well, it, it was a sort of mixture of accidental factors, really. I'd become an activist in, in my local party, and I met people who worked at party headquarters, and they said, why didn't I apply for a job there? Which I wouldn't have thought of doing, because I assumed they'd only want Oxbridge economists, and I was a... <laughs> Um, a Mancunian metallurgist. Um, but anyway, I, I did apply and I got I got the job. And when I got there, I found very quickly I was working with a lot of MPs. Well, two things. One is I was working in, a, in an atmosphere where nearly everybody I was working with uh, who were researchers for the party wanted to be an MP. And many of them were quite expert in what contests were taking place and uh, all the details of it and so on. Uh, and secondly, I was working with a lot of MPs. After you know, not too long, I began to think that maybe I could do what they did as well as they were doing it. Um, and then the opportunity to, to go for Lincoln came up. And as you say, because of the two elections, when I got the candidacy for the first one, there was no question of, of winning, um, but it was good experience. Uh, and then, of course, 
accidentally we had the second election and we <laughs> squeaked in. Accidentally. I mean, just what, what do you remember about that time? And, you know, listeners, uh, some listeners will remember it. Others will have, but also maybe have seen um, uh, later on too, the, the, this House play, which chronicled the, you know, the yes. battles to try and keep the Labour, uh, Labour government on, on the road. Play. What was it so like? Accurate. What was it like being at the centre of that? That play is really, really accurate. And, and there's a figure in it, Anne Taylor, uh, who was a, a woman whip, who was a sort of composite of, of the real Ann Taylor and Betty Boothroyd and I, because we were all in the Labour Whip's office during that period. Um, but it's, uh, it's I, I found it interesting that, that uh, you know, um, a theatreful audience uh, actually enjoyed and, and clearly was caught up in the drama of that. It, it was a dramatic period. We didn't really have a majority. Every vote had to be scrutinised and watched and massive efforts made to persuade people to, to vote with the government. Um, and, you know, the, the hours, of course, were so different. I mean, if you went home, if, if the house rose at, uh, after 10 o'clock, that, that was an early night. If you went home at half past 11, that was a perfectly normal night. And once, I seem to remember, in the real world, it was Thursday, but in the House of Commons, it was still Tuesday because we were still doing, <laughs> having sat continually, continually from Tuesday right through to Thursday. It was it was an epic time, um, and uh, various points in the last uh, couple of weeks, people have drawn parallels uh, with the nineteen seventies, particularly with the you know the rising cost of living, rising inflation, the cost of living crisis, you know the oil shock, and so on. Uh, do, do you think that's that's accurate? Or do we over egg these these comparisons sometimes? No, I think there is some validity in the comparison. But one thing I would say that nobody ever seems to say. And, and nobody ever gave any credit to the 1974-79 Labour government, not historically anyway. Um, that government was it came to power in a period when the oil price went up fivefold. I mean, we're talking about the costs of energy now. It was a five times increase in the price of oil and in the cost of energy. And that sort of, you know, fed into absolutely everything. It was a massive problem. It's, it's what brought Ted Heath's government down. Uh, and it certainly was a huge problem for us throughout that period. And, of course, the other thing that we don't get any credit for, which is enormously important, it was the Labour government that made sure that the country got the proceeds of North Sea oil. Ted Heath had given incredibly favourable contracts to the oil companies. And when we came in, it was Tony Benn, actually, at the Department of Energy, um, who presided over having much better and more fair. And, of course, then the money began to roll in, and it rolled into Margaret Thatcher, who spent it all on getting herself re-elected instead of investing in education <laughs> and training and keeping our industry going. And then, you know, that's our history. Well, you uh, you became a minister in uh, under Howard Wilson in 1976, um, and then uh, obviously under Callaghan afterwards. But lost your seat in 1979. So let's jump forward to uh, the 1980s. Then you came back uh, in uh, 1983, and then under uh, having supported Tony Benn for leader in 1981, you then became a key supporter of Neil Kinnock as he reshaped the party. A precondition to honouring those or any other undertakings that we did. That precondition is unavoidable, total, insurmountable, and it's a precondition, and in this movement we don't want to surmount. It is the precondition that we win a general election. That is the precondition. 
So you, by this point, Margaret, you'd, be, you'd been an MP, you'd been in government under Wilson and Callaghan, then you'd lost your seat, and then you'd come back to find the Labour Party under Michael Foote in 1983. And there's this extraordinary then period of, uh, of opposition, 18 years of uh, the Conservatives in government. What was that like, that period in, in, the, in the 1980s and Neil Kinnock trying to take the party back towards electability? And, and how similar is that to what we're seeing now with Keir Starmer trying to take the party uh, back to electability after Jeremy Corbyn? It's not all that similar, uh, I think, in the sense that um, what Neil did laid the basis for a permanent difference in approach, certainly for the vast majority of the Labour Party, because after our defeat in 1987, Neil put in place a, a, a review, a top-to-bottom top review of policy. And until then, what I think people perhaps wouldn't realise now is... This was true in the Conservative Party as well as in the Labour Party. You fought an election. You, you fought a, a period of opposition, criticising because you didn't agree with it, um, the things that your opponents were doing. You vowed to reverse them, and and you tended to get a thing which people found very disillusioning. Where the Tories did something, and then if we got in, we undid it, and vice versa. Um, and it was a bit of a sort of, um, uh, you know, a back and forth thing. And what Neil did was to say, look. We'll have to deal day to day with what comes up in the House of Commons. We have to oppose what we oppose, uh, support if there's anything we support. But what we need to do is to reflect that the next government will be elected in the 1990s. They'll be governing through the 1990s, towards the end of the 90s. And we need to think about what the problems of, of that period will be, not just today, and also what difference a government can make to tackling those problems, and in particular what difference a Labour government can make. That gave you a completely different mindset, which was unprecedented in British politics. Nobody else had done it. I'm not entirely convinced the other parties have done it even now. And it creates a completely different... And I used to go around, when I was in the economic team, I used to go around talking to people in the business community and I would say this to them and they'd say, oh, well, of course, that's what that's what we do. That's what we have to do. We have to have our plans looking for the period of the future, not just what's happening today. But it was the first time it had been done in British politics. It brought about an irreversible shift in the mindset of most people in the Labour Party and that has persisted. Uh, so let's move forward then to the 1990s. Um, obviously, uh, after the 92 election, John Smith replaced uh, Neil Kinnock as leader, but then sadly he died in 1994. By this point, you were deputy leader, so you became the first woman at the head of the Labour Party. What was that like for you? It was pretty horrendous, actually, because not only was I um, the first woman, that was, to be honest, a minor part of it, but we were on the brink of the European elections, and I'd been in charge of um, our campaigning. Uh, and the thing we had envisaged throughout was that, because that's the only, or was, the only nationwide test um, electorally. So we'd planned to use the European elections as a kind of dry run for the following general election. Um, and we'd planned to, to, you know, have a particular programme for John and all that kind of thing. And suddenly there I was, leader... Um, without a, a campaign coordinator and without a deputy, because both of those things I'd been doing. Um, and um, you, you ran uh, for the leadership and the deputy leadership. Um, do you, uh, looking back now, 
uh, resent might be a, a strong word, but the, the fact that the party, re, you know, you, you, you picked the party up, you uh, having lost, the, so tragically lost John Smith, you picked the party up, you were, do, you were doing all those jobs you're talking about, sharing all those hats. The, the fact that then the party, you know, repaid that um, all that work by voting for, for John, uh, John Prescott and Tony Blair, did that upset you? Did you resent that? I, I expected it. From the moment that I stood, it, one of the things that John and I had done was to try to campaign and to, to, to work as a team. And I thought that in the aftermath of John's death, the party would want a new team. Um, and that's why I stood... I, it was open to me. I had the opportunity not to put the deputy leadership in contention. I could have just uh, let the Labour leadership contest happen, stayed on as deputy, and then there would have been another contest in the autumn at the party conference for the deputy leadership. And a lot of people wanted me to do that because, like me, they thought that if the two were run together, then John Prescott would win um, rather than me. But I thought that was right for the party. If that was what the... If that, to be perfectly frank, I, I didn't... Leo didn't allow me to say this at the time. I never wanted to be deputy leader. It's a terrible <laughs> job. It's a terrible job. You have to go to every dog hanging. You're the person who has to be on television at four o'clock in the morning when you've lost a by-election. It's a dreadful job. But, you know, it was... <laughs> I was forced to accept that it was my duty um, to do it, so I did it. Um, but as I say, I really thought that if the, if what the party wanted was a new team, the party should have a new team. I just wanted to to go back to uh, when you stood in at PMQs. You, well, you were at PMQs facing John Major, which it just all seemed very familiar. Let's take a listen. Why should people take the, the Prime Minister's word for any of these reasons? when in fact the Conservatives claim to be the party of low crime and they're the party of high crime. They claim to be the party of low tax when everybody now knows that they're the party of high tax. Why should he be believed when he makes these excuses? Well, I think the Right Honourable Lady will have some difficulty in persuading the nation that in any given circumstances the Labour Party or indeed the Liberal Democrats would have lower taxation than a Conservative government under any conceivable circumstances. Margaret, that could have been this week. That's basically what was happening at PMQs this week. Yeah, uh, and, and we were right then and we're right now. <laughs> did you enjoy doing that? Did you enjoy yeah. you enjoyed the theatre of, uh, of, of PMQs in the Commons? Yes, I did. It's very hard. I mean, what people outside don't realise is that the Prime Minister has all the cards. You know, the Prime Minister is meant to win at Prime Minister's Question Time. That's how it's geared, every time. And if the, if the leader of the opposition scores or wins, that's, that's kind of, it's not outside the rules, but, you know, it, it's not how it's meant to be. Um, the Prime Minister, the leader of the opposition can only ask questions. So every time the Prime Minister says, well, you tell us what you, you know, you're not allowed to. And we all know that, but of course the general public often sort of think, well, yeah, go on then, why, why don't you say? That's because, <laughs> so the, the Prime Minister has all the cards and the Prime Minister always gets the last word. That's so important, getting the last word. Well, the Prime Minister obviously then changed in 1997. Uh, Tony Blair became Prime Minister. You held several uh, positions in, in Tony Blair's cabinet, eventually becoming the first woman uh, foreign secretary. Uh, that, your brief included, obviously, the 2006 war between Israel and Lebanon, negotiating with Iran over nuclear weapons, which included meetings with, as we've been talking about in the story, the foreign minister, Sergei, uh, Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, at the UN, as well as Afghanistan and Iraq. I think this is increasingly evident. is a growing recognition 
of the need for unity in Iraq. Uh, there will, of course, be different points of view, um, different issues that arise, different interests. This happens in every country. But it is working together and pulling together that can provide the answer for the people of Iraq. And uh, my perception is that the people who the Iraqi people have chosen to lead them understand that and are very anxious to serve the interests of their people. Uh, that was a press conference between, in uh, 2006 there between you and the Iraqi president, uh, Jalal Talib- uh, Talibani. I just wondered now your reflections on, I mean, you were, clear, you were in the cabinet the whole time. It was a very fraught time in the cabinet, in the run-up to Iraq and afterwards. What's your reflection now on whether it was the right thing to do? I, I think mixed. Uh, one thing that, that nobody ever really allows for is... What a horrendous regime Saddam Hussein was running, and what would have happened if he'd still been there? Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's completely understandable. Everybody, everybody hates war. Um, nobody wants to have to go to war. Um, but at the time, the evidence, again, the thing people don't remember, when uh, the Security Council of the United Nations discussed. Um, uh, the issues uh, uh, around Iraq, they were unanimously of the view. That includes Russia and France and Syria, who were on the Security Council at the time. Everybody believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Everybody. And that included us. And the evidence seemed very strong. And, you know, when, when they didn't appear... People were increasingly bewildered and suspicious. And, you know, one of the things I've never forgotten, Dr. David Kelly, who tragically died during that period, um, people sort of have got the idea that, of course, he, was against, he wasn't against the war. As a UN weapons inspector, he was strongly in favour of action against Saddam Hussein because he believed, and he argued in it, he wrote an article for The Observer, which wasn't published till after he died, saying that while Saddam Hussein is in power, he will continue to pursue the acquisition and use of weapons of mass destruction, including nuclear weapons. So that was David Kelly's view, having acted as a weapons inspector. Yeah. So it was, it was very difficult and tragic, and it's left, a, you know, obviously an incredible mark um, on our politics and the politics across the world. But an awful lot of people have, mem- have, have an impression of it that I don't have because, you know, of being there at the time. And it's that classic thing that at the time, you know, the, the polls showed that he, there was huge public support for it. And then... Uh... About how everybody opposed... No, they didn't. A lot of, a lot of people, perfectly understandably, yeah. and Tony Blair would be the first to say this, the opposition to the, to the going to war was perfectly understandable, but it was not the majority in the country. Um, I want to ask you, when you became uh, Foreign Secretary, it was reported uh, <laughs> that your... You used a four, there was a four-letter word beginning with F that was your response to uh, being handed that job in 2006. Is that apparently Jack Straw said the same thing when he was made Foreign Secretary. <laughs> <laughs> Should it, surely it's a great office of state. You were the first woman to do it. Surely it was exciting. But I suppose in the aftermath of, um, of Iraq and so on, that, that maybe, that, I could, maybe the, that response is uh, understandable. Well, I wasn't expecting it at all. I mean, uh, I'd, I'd had a... Um, quite a lot of, of um, negotiating success in, in the job that I had just before um, 
uh, we'd had the election. And so for the first time, I wasn't really thinking that I... Because I was always on the list for, for journalists. You know, there's always a list of yes, people who are bound it, yeah. to be, got, be yep. sacked this time. I was always on that list. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so, well, why is Margaret Beckett still there? I mean, she'd, I'd, I'm afraid uh, because I, I, I came into politics in an era where there are very few women, I was always able to not have to um, cultivate... The news media and I didn't because I didn't want to so journalists could never see the use of me because I didn't leak I didn't brief against my colleagues I just got on with the job and so consequently journalists would have liked somebody more entertaining in any of the jobs that I did that's really interesting um, and and you know I don't blame them. and um, do you think and you and you think you were able to do that because you're a woman in politics and actually leaders needed a certain number of you know, they didn't have many women to choose from. And they were trying. When I, when so your job started, was more secure. You know, every, it was very hard lines on the young men who were equally as qualified as, as the women of my generation. Because if you were asked to do a television programme or a radio interview, so you could afford to say no because you know they'd be coming back to you. Yeah. Because, but young men weren't in that happy position. So all the way through, I had that advantage. And I'm afraid I sort of meanly took it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they got their own back. Um, uh, the, the media got their own back, but it, it, but that was a, something I was able to get away with, which I'm sorry to say for them, uh, today's young women would not be able to get away with. It's, that's fascinating. That it's fascinating. Um, but let's let's fast forward a bit because we've we've, got, we've still got a lot to get through. Yes. Your um, uh, Labour Labour leave office in 2010, um, and uh, we had the period of Ed Miliband, and then in 2015, having lost the election in 2015, there was this big debate about what happens to the Labour Party now, and you were one of those who helped Jeremy Corbyn onto the ballot paper. Yeah. And uh, you admitted at the time, somebody else called the people, the MP, uh, uh, John McTurnan, said that the Labour MPs had helped Jeremy Corbyn onto the ballot paper to widen the, the, the debate were morons, and you admitted at the time that you had been a moron. Uh, you were one of them. I was one of the people who did that. So if you want to call me a moron, yes, do. Um, do you think, because you were quite honest about that at the time and you said it was a yeah. mistake, um, do you think that others need to reflect on their roles? I mean, Keir Starmer was in, he wasn't just, he didn't just uh, put forward Jeremy Corbyn as uh, a possible Prime Minister of the last election. He was in his shadow cabinet. Do you think he should have been, he, do you think he needs to have a, a moment of public reflection on the mistake of putting forward Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, uh, to be Prime Minister, not once but twice? This is where I sharply differ from some of the people who criticise Keir and anybody else who was in the shadow cabinet. As far as I'm concerned, I, I would by then have preferred, well, I would, from the beginning, I nominated Jeremy to widen the, the debate. I told people not to vote for him, but they did. Uh, <laughs> and we were all stuck with it. And I've, I very much, I'm, I'm to, I forgot what I was about to say. You, you, you said, because I, I, I was making a point it. about I've Keir Starmer. Was, yeah. was it a mistake for him to, to I'll serve? Tell you what I said to people throughout the 2017 and the 2019 general elections, and what I hold to to this day, Jeremy Corbyn had lots of weaknesses and, and lots of things where I disagreed with him. But if you're asking me to choose between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, I would choose Jeremy Corbyn. I chose him then, and I would choose him now. And... Uh, Keir, I would imagine, is in a similar position. Jeremy is, whatever his faults, Jeremy is not a person of ill will. Jeremy is not utterly careless of anybody else's concerns. Jeremy would not, would, not even would not, not even the Jewish the community, the poor. not even the, surely the Jewish is, community, would say that he was careless about their I mean, their feelings. I know. I, I 
I find it hard to see Jeremy personally. I'm, I'm, I'm causing problems saying this, I know. I find it hard to see Jeremy himself as anti-Semitic. What I would say, though, is that he was far too generous and far too sympathetic to people who he thought, in general terms, were good, good people who just had this little flaw, which wasn't a little flaw at all. Some of them were terribly anti-Semitic. And Jeremy, because he he agreed with them about other things, Jeremy was much too prone to defend them. And that was a very, very major error, which Keir fortunately has, has rectified and overcome. But don't ask me to defend campaigning against having Boris Johnson as Prime yeah. Minister. Well, just, fi- just finally, Margaret, because we, I, I appreciate your time uh, this morning. Um, we'll be reflecting back on the various periods with the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and so on. Um, is, is, do you think Keir Starmer, is Keir Starmer Neil Kinnock clearing up the mess of the uh, left-wing, <laughs> scruffy Labour leader who led the party to a, a historic defeat? Or is he Tony Blair taking the party to a landslide at the next election? Where does, where does Keir Starmer fit in to the leaders that you've served under? I don't think he's either of those. He's himself. But if you're asking me for a comparison, I would say he's Clem Attlee. He's the man who people people who like excitement and fun in politics, which is quite silly, really. You know, I, I often think, I'm sure a lot of the people out there who voted for Boris Johnson think he's the kind of man you go to the pub with. No, he's not. He'd turn up hours late. He wouldn't buy a round, ever. He would tell you the same joke he told you the last time, and he'd only be there to get an excuse to be out of the house. The man who you go to the pub with and talk football with and have a pint with is Keir Starmer. It's a, it's a, I mean, that's a, as endorsements go, that's pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good. Um, just finally, uh, Margaret Beckett, it, it's been, you know, the Labour Party is, it cha- is its champions, you know, the underdog and equality for such a long time. Why has the Labour Party never had an elected Labour leader? You, you got a chance as acting leader, so did Harriet Harman. But when given the opportunity to choose, it's always chosen a man. Is, is, is there something sexist about the Labour movement? No, there's just so much luck in politics. People don't realise. I mean, the best, the first woman prime minister should have been Barbara Castle. She had it all. She had charm. She had charisma. She had brilliance. She was a star. But the timing was never quite right for Barbara. And and you know, so many people would have said Shirley Williams was a potential leader. Although I'm afraid I think they'd have been wrong because Shirley, there's a there's a steel that you need to be leader, and I don't think Shirley had it. But, you know, I speak as somebody who was her junior minister for four yeah. years. Um, so, but, you know, there there were women of considerable potential, but it just was never, never quite, quite the right time and the right place. And so now you're standing down. We've said you've got to stand down in the next election. Just for any, any regrets? Not really. I mean, obviously, there are things I regret, mistakes I made, things I got wrong. But I feel very fortunate. I've always been mindful that very little that you do is actually down to just you. you. You're part of a team, you know, you make your contribution to the team, but there are there are moments when you think, well, actually, I did that, and that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been there. And, um, and you know, I, I'm very proud of the contribution I made to the national minimum wage being instituted, although yeah. George Osborne said his best to pretend it was the Tories who did it. Huh? Um, they were saying it would cost two million jobs, uh, and you know I didn't do all the all the background work. That was done by a colleague called Ian McCartney. He did all the the, yeah. the, the legwork and and all the 
intellectual preparation and all that kind of thing. But if if it hadn't been for me being where I was at the time, it wouldn't have come through in quite the way it did. And things like that, um, you know, I'm, I can look back on with 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 pleasure that I was able to make that contribution. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of light-hearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.